Our intentions as parents and coaches of child athletes are usually good. Even if we only have average DNA to pass down, we want our kids to be better than us. Some of them even dream of being stars. Is that realistic? And is there a recipe for getting them there? My guest today is going to try to help us answer some of those questions and more. Dr. Chris Brooks teaches a course I'm taking called The Science of Training Young Athletes. It's offered online by the University of Florida and Coursera, and it's free. All you have to do is register. I can't believe there's all this great information out there for free, right? It's like the public library. Use it, people. It's a deep dive, and there's a lot of stuff in there I'm guessing most of us have never been exposed to, so you really learn a lot. Dr. Brooks is also the coaching science coordinator for USA Track and Field, so she has seen the top of the food chain. Dr. Brooks, welcome to the Youth Sports Experience. It's great to be here, Mark. I'm happy to talk to anybody who's coaching young athletes because that's where it's all at. We don't have elite champions unless we have good young co coaches of young athletes. So my Absolutely. pleasure. Yeah, I mean, you carry the title doctorate and you carry the title coach. I mean, both of those are pretty cool, right? Does one um, tug on your heartstrings any more than the other? Oh, not really. I've been around a long time. So, you get, you know, <laughs> titles lose much of their significance. But um, I, right now, I'm not really coaching. I coached many, many years ago before my son started school. Mm -hmm. And then I decided that it just wasn't going to work with me being away. So um, I stopped coaching and that's when I went back and finished off my doctorate. And um, a few years ago, about 10 years ago, when I was looking at retiring, I decided I would get back into coaching, but I wasn't sure if I really wanted to get on the field anymore. But what I could do was help coaches understand things I never understood when I was a coach that I wished I had understood way back then in the 1970s. So I did, you know, my level one and level two with USA Track and Field and my um, teaching education, my teaching certificate with them. And did a few lectures and they liked what I did and the coaches loved what I did. So. I finished up gradually doing more and more until I, you know, basically took over the program. And it's great to be able to share the science in a way that coaches understand. And if our coaches don't understand the science, that's when we head into trouble with overtraining athletes and losing too many athletes, you know, to, to ill health and bad training. So that's what I like to do. And it's been pretty successful. And the, I'm, I think I'm half decent at it given the teaching evaluation. So it's great to be able to just give back to the yeah. sport. And with technology, think about how many more people you're touching. So that's pretty cool. Right. There's been over 30,000 coaches throughout the world have gone through the, those two courses I have up there. Uh, mainly the first one. The first one basically touches on a lot of what parents want to know and beginning coaches want to know. So that's been quite successful. And the second one um, is coming up on about 10,000 uh, coaches on that one. That's more about training, more of, a, of an advanced athlete high school on up type training. Mm. So I think it's really cool that you worked for USA Track and Field because I'm going to take a wild guess and, and you weren't born in the United States. 
No, I wasn't. I was born in New Zealand. <laughs> and um, actually, it was, was um, very stunning to me when I first came over because in New Zealand, um, track and field was integrated with men and women, boys and girls, all the way through. And I came over here, and of course, the women didn't even have a, a track and field program. I went to Penn State to the biomechanics lab and um, actually got the, the only indoor track was in the men's gym. And I actually got thrown off that track because I wanted to do a workout when it was um, snowy outside. Um, so that's, we've come a long way since then. The women didn't have an indoor track. Um, much to my chagrin, I was escorted off, off that track, which I absolutely did not understand. And then it so happened that um, Title IX was coming in at that time, and they had to start a women's program at um, the women's track and field program at Penn State. And um, the dean knew that I had been in track and field when I was growing up and asked me if I would coach. And of course, I said yes, never having coached a minute in my life, although I did feel like I understood a lot of the science by then. But that's how I got into coaching, um, just by pure luck, really. Not many women made it through um, more than about seven, eight, nine years. It was a tough time for female coaches and female athletes, actually. Um, and then gradually, they because they started to integrate the program. About that time, I decided it was time for me to, um, you know, to quit coaching and, and go back and get my doctorate and become a little bit more um, stable in terms of less travel for my son. And, um, you know, just years went by and all of a sudden, I felt like I needed to get back and do something with the science that I've learned all those years. You know, so I can, this is what I can, I've been doing. I can thank you for uh, helping blaze the trail, you know, for female athletes, because clearly I'm living the benefit. You know, my wife is a women's basketball coach, University of Maryland. So, you know, um, you took some some hits for the rest of us. <laughs> so yeah. thank you. <laughs> the, the, there were a couple of tough women who survived and especially the women basketball coaches. But most of us decided, ah, this is this is not worth it. So, you know go back yeah. do something else but it's come a long way and I'm, I'm glad for the women that it's come it's still a long way to go I think um, mm -hmm. but we've certainly at least the women get a shot at the university and and I think it's benefited all age groups now even the young ones right. um, getting better coaching right mm -hmm. so the science of training young athletes. In my little introduction, I talked about, you know, parents, we have great intentions. Um, is there a recipe for us to follow that can uh, overcome our average DNA that we have to pass on? Uh, well, you know, you have to decide what you're in the sport, what the kids are in the sport for. A lot of it is for good health, um, fun, enjoyment, all, all the things that kids like to do when they are going through those early ages and giving them the physical literacy skills. So you really are not worried too much about whether they have the DNA. You don't know if they have the DNA or not until they're about, or at least through puberty. And then you can start to see if there is any potential there. Um, up to that point, the best thing a parent can do is to get 
everybody, even the slow, you know, the, the late maturers, mm -hmm. a chance to develop the skills that they need for a variety of sports. So when they get through puberty, they can get into the sport that they're most suited for. I've had this conversation before with other, you know, youth sports parents. And when we're watching, you know, our young prepubescent kids play, sometimes I try to politely say, you know, don't get too excited by, you know, what you see right now because puberty comes along and it's a game changer. It changes everything. And right. different kids may be the ones leading the way. And that's, you hit on this, uh, you know, when you talked about the late bloomers versus the early matures, you know, you talked about it a second ago and you also talked about it in the course. Correct. The, the little puny person on your team, they may be the next Olympic champion. And unfortunately, we lose a lot of those kids because they're ridiculed, because they're, they're not doing well or they're not put on the team or on the, uh, you know, in the competition because they can't score points. And yet, and, and as a result, they get discouraged or they don't develop their skills. That's one path that they might take. The other path is they get pretty stubborn and say, I can do this. And they actually can develop much better skills than the early mature. And that's one of the reasons that when these kids get through puberty, they have pretty decent technique compared to the early mature who has gotten away with poor technique because they can win by doing almost anything and they don't don't feel like they have to practice quite as much mm -hmm. so that watch that little puny kid that could be <laughs> the next talent you know that we're looking for right so it crossed my mind um you know when i ask is there a recipe to overcome our dna what we're really talking about is the age-old argument nature versus nurture right and i mean where do you fall in that great debate? Um, I, you know, we know for sure, the science says that um, being good at sport is about 50% genetics. Um, this is when, when they get, get through puberty. So we know that it's about 50%. The other part of it comes from training and also the environment. What kind of environment are you putting the kid into so that they develop their physical literacy skills so there's a huge component there that's not genetic now if you don't have good genetics you'll never be elite but you can become pretty good and if you don't have good genetics and you're close to um, the elite level you can beat the you know the person who does have better can better genetics than you just because you've got better technique and you've done better job training and had a better environment improve your diet so the same is for kids you know that they may not have speed um, certainly that does show up fairly early um, but there's you know there's distance especially with track and field you've got such a variety of sports and there's such a tremendous variety of things um, if you've got good coordination Basketball might be the sport for them, but you have to have the genetics there right. is height. So you are, so you, you always run across genetics, but if you have a good rounded kid, they can find something to fit into as they develop. They've just got to be given those opportunities really. And what I've learned in basketball just over the years now being married to a coach is, I mean, it's not only height, it's wingspan. And there are just some people with, exceptionally long arms and Great. that is like 
a bonus to your height. You know, like you may be six two, but if your arms are like six eight, you're even taller than six two. Right, and that's the case with swimmers. Mike, um, Mike Spitz was one um, that had tremendous, uh, a really unusual body, short in the trunk, short in the legs, wide in the arms, you know. So yeah, it, there's, the, there's the unique physiques that certainly fit more sports than others, but because you can't be very tall to be a gymnast, you have to be a little teeny thing. So, but there are a lot of sports. Soccer is very much a medium build. Um, a good combination of aerobic and, and, and speed, um, but you don't have to be good at everything for, for soccer. You just have to know how to really, how to kick a ball really well and have good ball control. And that is something that every kid can, can learn um, to, to some degree. Again, there is still the coordination component that is genetically based, but, mm -hmm. You know, you can still come around, put a ball on their feet when they're pretty young, let them kick it around, you know, and then they will develop that coordination as they as they tend to grow. And as they go through puberty, you run into the problem of them losing their coordination and it can become frustrating. That's where a lot of kids drop out there and the parents become frustrated. What happened? The coach doesn't know what happened, but it's because the brain has to relearn everything. Right. Um, you know, relearn the coordination, but it's just got to be patient. So kids, go through. I think the lingo today with kids in video games, they call it a cheat code, you know, where, you know, you get this code and then all of a sudden you can win the game, but that doesn't really exist so far, right? In, in training young athletes. But I mean, you do address in the course, something called long-term athletic development. Can you briefly give me a summation of that? Correct. The idea of well, there's a couple of things. Let me address the other thing that, that you touched upon is the nature versus nurture. And yet there's this 10,000 hour rule where some researcher, Erickson, came up and said, well, just practice for 10,000 hours and anybody can be a champion. Well, that's not true either. We do know that there's a lot of, of practice. So that's the nature versus nurture argument. You know, you know people that have practiced golf. For, mm -hmm. and paid a fortune to get golf lessons and still they're not very good at golf. They're good, but not where they ought to be if, if that was the true truth. So that's one side of it. But this long-term athlete development um, side was to look at taking athletes in a systematic way through to the point in their life which is around about 15 for track and field I'm not sure what it is for basketball or some of the other sports but for track and field it's about 15 years of age when they can start specializing and so you divide their their development up into uh, pre-12 which is where the brain is still developing it develops fully by 12 years of age and they can learn all kinds of skills I mean you being in basketball no kids that can do amazing things with a ball dribbling between their legs and around and you know they're like little butterflies with with a ball um, so they can do that gymnasts can learn amazing skills before 12. so this that's because of the brain what lags behind is the body it lags way behind the brain and evolution you know from an evolution point of view we needed to develop our brain really quick and that's the reason that it evolves um, very, very quickly so we can survive uh, in, in our harsh environment back 
back in the, the very ancient days. Um, and then the idea is, is up to that point, make sure that they're physically literate. They should be able to kick and throw and hit and run and jump and skip and hop. All the things that you and I did as a kid, just through natural play, you know, would go down to the beach in my case and, and lay out a hopscotch thing right on the sand and play hopscotch for hours. And that was hump, hopping and jumping and twisting and turning and, and that developed those coordination skills. So the kids are not getting the wide variety anymore. They're getting a lot of this. I was watching my grandson play whatever this Minecraft game was and it was all thumbs. Uh, certainly they have to think at least in that game. I, I think, I don't know. I, don't I feel your pain. It's just too complicated <laughs> for me. <laughs> but um, they're not, you know, you have to harp on them. He's been restricted to a certain time on the computer to force him to go out and do other things, you know, but if they don't do that, they don't develop a good, what we call physical literacy. They have to be able to do that. If they don't have good physical literacy by the time they're 12, they are forever behind the eight ball when it comes to um, trying to be good in sports. And as well, nowadays, they tend to um, put on weight if they're not out there playing for many, many hours. So that's the first component. Then there is a, a component they call, you know, that, that teaching them how to train. And these kids might be on traveling teams or um, have a, a sport in the summer and a sport in the winter that they will do and they're, they're in the competitive environment. It's supposed to be fun. They're supposed to be learning how to train in that stage. And then there is the next stage where they're learning how to compete and you start introducing the psychology of, of competing and dealing with emotions. And so by the time they're 15, they're, they're ready to start specializing in their sport and learning the nuances of that sport. But the problem is that 15 segment is now being moved way, way down, way too young. Um, now it works for some, Tiger Woods, for example, did sport from the time he was a little tiny thing, but you know, he's got back problems and he's had all kinds of operations, um, you know, and, and they have mental, a lot of them have mental issues because they've had no childhood. Uh, so we, you, the child who is so-called prodigy um, gives up a lot and not very, very small, small, tiny fraction make it through. And we know in track and field that if a, if a runner is a junior champion, forget about it, we will not see them in the senior level. They just cannot cope with that next level because they haven't been developed. They just don't have the skills um, to develop. And then these late bloomers are coming through. All of a sudden they've got more competition and they don't know how to handle the competition. So uh, they give up, they get frustrated with people they used to beat all of a sudden beating them. Um, and so we, I, um, I was going through the data just a couple of weeks ago. There might have been one or two have, have come through, but for the vast majority, you never hear them. 
hear about them. And the ones that have come through have done lots of sports, you know, and then at 15, they've found that, oh, yeah, I'm really good at triple jumping mm. or I'm really good at distance running. I love to, you know, I've got good lungs in it. And they start to have some success. And so that's when they um, develop uh, their, their, their skills. So in that case, it's like their previous years in their life were really preparing them for that event or that time to some extent. I mean, in addition to their anatomy and just how they're built. So they didn't even know they were working towards this this goal, but they did. So if you were to take a five-year-old kid and tell parents, you know, these are the sports that he or she should play to allow them to develop all these systems, to be well-rounded when they get to 12 or 13 or 15, uh, what sports would you pick for, for a young kid? Yeah, that, that's a really hard question because a lot of it goes down to what are their friends doing? What is available to them? You know, some of the sports like ice hockey is very, very expensive. But the, the, the key is, do they love it? You know, if they don't love it, then they're not going to do it. And then to make sure that, that it's a different sport, like having a throwing sport in one season and a leg sport in another season. And, you know, if you have a third season, maybe a combination of the, of the two, but just let them pick the sports that they love, let them get out and play. Um, and you'll find that they will, they will develop themselves a lot in a lot of cases. And if you're a coach in that sport that they have to be in, at, well, you, at five and six, you're just going to be working on physical literacy skills. But if you're a coach of seven, eight, nine, 12 year age group, then your job is to make sure that you don't overtrain them, that you teach them the skills that they need, that they love the sport, that you're not bullying them. You know, there's all kinds of new coaching rules now that a coach cannot get away with the things that they used to mm. to do you know this bullying and harassing um, that does nothing to help the kid feel like they are really important and and you've got to teach them how to um, learn to accept the fact that they may not be good now but let's figure out you know just keep at it and who knows what's going to happen in the future so it's just the constant encouragement um that that you need to to work on to keep them feeling good about themselves yeah. you know a lot of us dads even when the, our kids are like seven we tend to get over competitive <laughs> right it gets a little overboard yeah, if the parents weren't around the kids would be just fine there's no question about that my son coaches um my grandson's hockey team and i made him go through my course before <laughs> he started that because I said you know you you could finish up ruining these kids uh, especially your own son because my my grandson has looks like quite a bit of talent now who knows what's going to happen but he's got good coordination for somebody who's 10 years of age you know which you would expect if if a kid has had good balance physical literacy but my granddaughter, on the other hand, is much, um, much slower to pick up things. It doesn't mean to say she can't find a sport that's going to fit for her. Um, you just don't know what it is. So you just keep them 
going. The problem is that they keep putting her and my grandson together, which I think is convenient. <laughs> it's convenient. And, you know, it's it just, you've got only got a certain amount of time as a parent. Yep. Whereas um, she, they gave her a selection of a sport. She just, she um, selected horseback riding. And she's a natural at that. The horse responds to her. Whereas my grandson tries to bully the horse and the horse doesn't like him mm. at all, you know. So it's she's just got a different temperament that the horse picks up on and he doesn't. He's better off smacking an ice hockey stick and out there, you know, running and doing the other things that, that require more um, brute force. But uh, so it's a matter of, of, and, and they did a good thing with him. They put them both in horseback riding and she can see, ah, I have, I am better at something than what he is. She's 12 and he's 10. So she feels really good that she's a natural horseback rider and, but not, you know, not nat necessarily a natural um, ice hockey player. So it's, and she loves horseback riding. Although she says she loves ice hockey, um, but she's much prefers horseback riding. So there's always something out there. Now, of course, those are two expensive sports and a lot of your parents will say, well, wait a minute, that's expensive. But there are other, you know, there's these other kind of combinations that you can play around with. Baseball is out there um, or T-ball or whatever it's called. I still haven't picked up on all those American names. Soccer is a great sport. In, in Down Under, they have what's called touch rugby. That's a great sport because they learn the dodging. They don't tackle. They just pull out a handkerchief and then they stop and they restart from there. So anything, you know, that the kids enjoy, that got fun, that gives them a chance to develop and learn their coordination under 12 or set them into good stead for later on. You know, you yeah. mentioned um, T-ball and baseball. When my kids were probably about seven or eight, I really thought about this and I tried to, tried to outthink it. And um, rather than playing baseball for that hand-eye coordination, I put him in tennis because I thought tennis was much more dynamic. Uh, you know, you have to move a lot more. You're constantly active. You have to think tactically. And, you know, you had to track the ball as it was coming in to try to hit it. So, you know, yeah. I don't know if that pays off or not, but that was the decision I made. That, tennis is a great sport for that. Um, probably better than t-ball, actually, because they've got a bigger racket to hit with. Well, T-ball, they hit off a stand, right? They hit off yes. something. Yep. Yeah. So, it's, you know, anything, tennis is, is great. We've got the grandkids in playing tennis as well, you know, as not as a particular sport. They don't belong to a club or anything, but just to get out there and hit the ball around just for that coordination. You know, you, you, we talked about the long-term athletic development plan briefly here, and you get into it much more in the course. And there are protocols, I guess, for each phase, depending on the age of the kid. When you look around in the U.S. at different sports or even around the world, is there anybody that's figured out how to do this better than the others, whether it's a country or maybe it's U.S. hockey, maybe it's U.S. soccer? I don't know. What have you seen? Any country in the world is better than what we are. And that's because their system is different. Um, Canada has a great system, a club system, Australia, New Zealand, England. There are any, any country that's based on a club system. 
the only sport that falls down on this, um, even though they have a, have a great system of developing their kids is soccer, because they're in such big, uh, such big competition to, to be able to identify the next future talent that they tend to, to lose a lot of soccer players because they over push them too early or identify the kids incorrectly, but it's, they're under financial pressure. But um, most European countries in uh, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, it's based on a club system. The problem with the United States um, is that it's based on the school system and, and it's a competitive system right from this from the, the get-go so it's the, the coaches in those systems in their high school and um, in college system are s selected based on their ability to win and produce teams so that's kind of has set the United States back um, soccer here in this country has a has a long-term athlete development hockey does um, ice hockey um, I think field hockey does too. Archery, I know I work with archery. They are trying to develop. So this track and field doesn't, um, even though I'm involved with, with them, although the USOC does, that they try to, to get other sports to kind of adopt and, and adapt for their sports. So there is some push to develop these long-term athlete development programs in this country, but we're a bit, bit behind just by the nature of the way we're set up. You know, we do have a club system um, where um, that works quite well, uh, you know, in the in the city areas and, um, and for our kids just learning how to play baseball and sports that are looking to try and keep, get kids introduced to the sport young. I know um, gridiron or American football um, has, is losing. Uh, football players uh, just because of the head injuries soccer ran into that trouble too so um, everybody's trying to address it but um, it's it's a little it's it's tough to implement as I discovered working with USA track and field having um, now lived it as a dad you know seeing youth basketball and youth soccer even though globally we're much more dominant in basketball Soccer actually has a much um, better plan for kids when I compare the two. You know, soccer, they believe in um, shrinking the number of players at younger mm -hmm. ages, whereas basketball, you largely still see five little kids against five odd little kids. It's a jumbled mess out there. You know, there's no room to operate. It doesn't allow most of the kids to touch the ball, whereas in soccer, they reduce it. I think you start off uh, maybe four on four with no goalie. So each kid has to touch the ball more. It's on a right. smaller field. You know, it, um, basketball is a little bit more like the Wild West in this country. And it's just, it's almost like Darwinian who rises to the top mm -hmm. rather than having an actual structure. Yeah, I don't know about the structure of basketball. I do know soccer has a good structure. It's based on the European structure. And ice hockey basically has picked up on that one too. I only know about that because my grandchildren are involved in that. Um, but yeah, soccer has done a great job. Part of it is because the field is so, so big that a kid cannot 
touch the ball enough if they play them on these big fields. So they, they've had this, the skill of kicking a ball and man, man, maneuvering a ball is so crucial to soccer. They had to shrink it down so that a kid is forced to touch that ball many, many, many times in practice. Um, but if you just throw them on a field, you know, only a few, a handful of the better athletes will get get to have a good practice. So yeah, soccer, you're right. I don't know where basketball has come down on this. Um, but USA Basketball has tried to create a curriculum, but there's, to me, there's just not as much formal structure in the youth basketball world as there is in the U.S. In youth soccer. soccer world, even with coaching yeah. licenses and things like that. Yeah, coaching licenses are a bit hit and miss yeah, yeah. <laughs> as they kind of go. But the intentions yeah. are good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's better to have something than nothing. Um, right. But yeah, I, I think it'll come because it's going to have to come. We can't afford to be losing kids to obesity, which is what we're doing right now. Um, you know, if they in, in video games and all this other stuff that that's going on in our young um, child's world. And I've always joked with the track and field coaches. I said, we better hope that McDonald's succeeds throughout the rest of the world and making their kids fat because we're not going to be able to compete with them if they don't, you know, so. Flooding the root, world with fast food. Right, right. Root for McDonald's to get, to get entry into the, to the rest of the world. But, you know, that's going to be an issue. Uh, there's so many competition, so much competition for the young, for the young body, really. Um, and, of course, the U.S. has been pretty, pretty successful in sport, all sports. Um, and it's basically because of our population. You know, you can ruin a lot of kids and just need that small handful to come to go through because you're competing on the international level with just a small, small portion um, of the population, very tiny portion. Whereas if you're a small country like New Zealand and Australia, which is a little bit larger, um, you really have to work hard to get sufficient kids through to be competitive at the elite at the elite level. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. You know, we are now entering the, uh, we are in the era of, you know, knowing the human gene code and um, attempting to guess a lot of things based on DNA. Are we going to now see genetically manipulated, you know, babies uh, for athletic purposes? Or are we going to get um, a reading of our infant's uh, DNA, and then they're going to tell us right there in the hospital, well, your son or daughter is built for this sport, that sport, and another sport, you know, so this is what sports they should play. Uh, it could end up that way, not that young. Um, it takes a while for their body to basically settle down. Um, so maybe by five or six, um, you could see that. But I, I read a really interesting scenario. We know that the type of training an athlete does or a young person does changes the fiber types. Um, we don't know a lot about it, but we do know that you know, the so-called fast and slow fiber types can be changed through training. And the argument was, well, if we know this, then what is to stop some country from 
going in and manipulating the number of fiber types that they know are necessary for that sport. For example, we know a sprinter needs a whole bunch of these very, very fast fibers. And we know from training how to train them, or at least we have some suspicions of how to train those. Um, and the argument was, well, it said, okay, so let's say somebody goes in and is able to genetically change um, the fiber types to a sprinter, to the sprint fiber type. I think they call this epigenetics, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. So, so let's assume that can happen. Okay, so that sprinter has had their fiber types altered. Now that sprinter goes and, and does an all-out sprint. What about the bones? What about the ligaments? What about the rest of the body who's got that has to support this new um, fiber distribution? That, that athlete who's been genetically altered like that will destroy themselves, will blow themselves up basically with, with destruction, They'll either break bones or pull ligaments. So they're going to have to learn a lot about how to make sure the entire body is adjusted. They can't just work on one thing and that's a ways off. Um, but there has been discussions about, about this, um, changing enzymes, changing whatever else they need, changing the size of the person. Um, you know, they can change the size of the person now, um, uh, but you know, what, what the consequences are, we're, we're not sure about that. And right now it's basically illegal to do anything that's artificial, um, an artificial change of the body in any way. Yeah, I think um, the closest I can think of off the top of my head, um was Yao Ming, the Chinese basketball player, who I believe they basically had, you know, one of the tallest Chinese female players and one of the tallest Chinese male players. They got together, you know, I think maybe they got married. I don't know. They had a baby and it's Yao Ming and he's gigantic and he actually made it to the NBA. Totally legal than that, doing it that way, because there are chances are that wouldn't happen too. Um, but no, that's, that has always happened where athletes have always married other athletes. And so you see the kids, um, chances of the kids coming through and being good athletes are much higher. That's just natural selection, just because those are, those are people that have come in close contact with. But, you know, country can do that. And what are you going to do to stop it? Really, that's natural but evidence selection. evidence is there, you know? Like, yeah. I mean, how will we ever even know? So Right, right. Um, mm. Yeah, uh, well, you know, so for now, we can't uh, turn on and turn off certain chromosomes, right? So we have to rely on other stuff. Uh, well, we, we can, but it's not to, uh, not to anybody's advantage at, at this point. Um, now, there are, um, there are cases where um, there's natural mutations of genes where muscle doesn't, um, just, you know, muscle is always um, replenishing itself and renewing itself. Um, and then the protein, some protein is withered away and replaced with other protein. There is a genetic mutation um, that um, allows the person to become really muscular. And you see some kids um, who are very muscular have this mutation. Um, and it's just because they've got this 
this um, gene that that does not um, that the protein just dis disintegrates much more slowly, so they're able to build more protein. And there's the odd case of that um, in in sports that we know about. We know that some women have natural naturally higher testosterone than others, and are still 100% female. And a lot of um, a lot of not, but some track and field athletes um, have a higher, um, females have a higher testosterone. So that's all natural. That can be manipulated. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So this is this whole argument right now of transgender and um, do you let transgender athletes compete or not compete? What's to stop? You know, why is it a transgender athletes allowed to use hormones? while other athletes are not allowed to use hormones. So this whole thing is going to be a, a heavily debated issue. We haven't even started debating that yet. You know, that's beside the point of them having opportunity in sport. This is a whole other issue at all, completely. This, we're talking about the elite level. Just where do you come down on what you control and what you don't control, you know. One example you point to in class of somebody who is built with almost like the perfect body for what they do is Michael Phelps, right? You know, with his long torso, his his feet. Um, so most of us don't have that. You know, we aren't. And, and also it, it helped that Michael Phelps actually liked swimming enough to keep doing it, right? Because it's not the most exciting thing to just keep swimming laps. But uh, for, you also mentioned windows of opportunity. Uh, at certain ages where there are windows within a kid's childhood where certain things can be maximized, whether it's their speed, maybe it's their strength, maybe it's their coordination. Now, they may have a limited ceiling, right, based on their, their genetic inheritance, but there are windows for kids to maximize, right. though. Can you, can you briefly summarize those for us? Right. Um, they are, they're called windows of opportunity because that is when the child needs to have those particular skills. Um, one example is working on any kind of neuro speed. Um, and that there's a window of opportunity between, I forget the exact name, uh, I think nine and 12. It's in the women. course if they want to yeah. know exactly. <laughs> right, it's in the course. And I, I can't remember yeah. all these details, but um, that, that is that coincides with the child's brain development and nervous system development. Now, after puberty, there's another window for speed development, and that coincides with their nervous with their um, uh, energy system development. So um, the idea is that if you if you hit them when the body is prepared to develop that particular if you know what you're developing you want neurological speed you want you know you're training everything to to get the body moving quickly then after that you're working on the energy systems that's when they mature enough to you can train those so there's two windows of opportunity for speed there's a couple of windows of opportunity for strength um, bef before puberty for women there's an opportunity for strength development although it does not appear to be for boys um, but the main window of opportunity is for boys is after puberty when they have got this huge spike in testosterone or just before they end puberty um, so you can start developing their strength during that time and the whole idea is to 
to try and hit the areas where the body is prepared to be adapt to that specific type of training. Um, and is this, there's some good evidence to say that works. And it doesn't mean that if you miss that window, you're never going to develop it. It's just that you'll be a little bit behind for a while if you don't, you know, don't hit those windows of opportunity. So yeah, as I say, the, the research is, is still, um, it's, it's hard to do research on this because the kid won't cooperate because their bodies don't stop growing, you know? So <laughs> how could you research, research something in time and then conclude at the end, that's the window of opportunity. Whereas it could be the growth, it could be a change in hormones, it could be anything that, that has caused that improvement. So it's really, really hard, but um, that there's some, some decent evidence that there is a couple of speed windows, a couple of strength windows. Um, there's also a window for developing aerobic capacity, which seems to be fairly level all the way through um, from about eight years on. Um, the fibers seem to be fairly well developed aerobically. Um, what you're limited by is the child's heart and lung mat, you know, their, and, their, and their size. So um, if you know those windows of opportunity, you can, can work on the skills or the, the, the specific motor performance ability during that time. Right. The nervous system seems still to me like the Wild West, the great frontier. I'm not sure that anybody truly understands it. No. And especially for, I keep coming back to sprinting. Um, you know, we, we used to think that sprinting was 100% genetic. Just line them up, let them sprint, and the fastest will come out, doesn't matter what age they are. That's not necessarily true. You know, first off, you've got that nervous system development under 12 years of age. But even after that, um, the nervous system has got to learn how to move a limb fast and how to pound the ground with a lot of force, to, you know. So there's, there's a lot we, don't, we do not know and we do know that, that sprinting is more nervous system um, controlled than it might be. I mean, genetics is there than anything else, but certainly the nervous system for any kind of speed, um, but any kind of coordination, sport, coordination yeah. anything. I've even thought dancing, anything. you know, people that dance, you know, seemingly well, probably it's, it's a neural thing, right? I mean, mm -hmm. they're just, maybe they have more neural connections from the muscles to the brain and it's just getting there faster and more accurately. Yeah, it's, it's their brain's ability to perceive where it is in space, where the limbs are in space um, and where it's positioned in space. And that takes a lot of training. That's where the 10,000 hours comes in really. They can have good coordination and do lots of things. You can have somebody who can run their, you know, little kid, uh, 12 year old who can manipulate the ball, put them on a court with a, a more experienced basketball player and he doesn't have a show because other things need to be developed. Perception of others around you, perceptions of anticipation of where that team member is gonna go next. How do you read? The body part of that team member so there's a lot more that goes into developing beyond just simple coordination the perception anticipation skills all that side of it all controlled by the brain that need to be developed as well 
And this is where these small-sided gains for soccer you were talking about come in mm -hmm. because it puts the kid in a constant position where they have to start learning about what the other people are going to do. And I think I talk about the research in cricket where they actually um, cover the blindfold, the eyes of the batter mm -hmm. at a certain point where they just before the pitch comes to them and they, they keep blindfolding them, you know, further and further or earlier and earlier into the pitch. They've done it with baseball too. And it's quite amazing that just before, before that the, the pitcher has even started moving their arm, the batter, an experienced batter, will know what that ball is going to look like. And they can do it blindfolded, basically. If just that's, that little bit of evidence. You know? That's simply amazing. I read a book called The Sports Gene, I think, by David Epstein. And mm -hmm. it talked about you know, baseball players, similar to cricket, um, eyesight. And the guys, some of the guys that could do that, it wasn't necessarily that they had faster reflexes, but they had better vision. And when they tested their eyesight, they were picking the ball up sooner and I guess in a more detailed way in the pitcher's hand before the average person would. And we're talking milliseconds of difference. Right. We're not sure if that's better vision or better neural okay, control. Fair enough. Yeah. yeah. So we're not sure about that because the eyesight is all controlled by the brain. So, mm -hmm. you know, with, with years and years of training and watching a fastball come in, you're, you're, you're training those eye muscles as well and the connections to the brain. So, yeah, so if you want a good read, that's a good, that's and, a good book. Some of the science <laughs> is a bit shaky, but, you know, it's, it's fun. It's yeah, fun. it's a fun book to read. Uh, and similar to your example with the cricket and the blindfold, they, I saw an amazing, uh, video i found it on youtube they did that with cristiano ronaldo in soccer where they would turn the lights out when someone would make a pass to him and right. he would get less and less you know light and he could still his brain could predict the path of the ball and his foot could meet the ball and redirect it in the goal it right. was absolutely amazing right or even hit the ball with his head yeah Yep. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yep. Most of us would end up yeah. with a broken nose. Well, <laughs> so. we but we wouldn't we or, wouldn't even come close to hitting right. the ball. You know, we wouldn't have that path. But how did how else do you explain why an outfielder can can pick up a fly ball if he waited to watch for that path of that fly ball? There was no way he could catch it. He has to know where that ball's going to land, and so he'll start running in that direction way before the um, batter has even struck the ball. He knows by the sound, you know, as that ball hits the back, exactly how fast it's gonna go, how far it's gonna go, and he will be on his way before it even leaves the, leaves the bat. It's amazing. Mm. It truly is, it truly is. And, and Dr. Brooks, I've only gotten through the first few weeks of the course, but I've already got all these questions. Um, and I'm sure there's a lot more great stuff to come. I can't thank you enough uh, for everything you're sharing through the course and for sharing this time here with me. I don't know if you want to give me a preview of what's to come, um, but I'd want to take too much of your time here. Uh, so if there is anything especially exciting you think you know that's coming up that that I'll really enjoy, or if there's anybody out there that people that want to follow up on this and grab a book or grab a, a study that's been done, is there's something that people can read or maybe some they can follow online. Is there anything you could recommend? Um, I, I was thinking about that, that question. That 
that's a hard one because a lot of the research is basically unreadable because it's too scientific. And this is part of what I try to do. Um, if you want, you know, fun things to read, the talent code, and they introduce you to some ideas. And um, but I, th I think whatever sport your child is doing it pays to learn a little bit about that sport by reading about it. It's fun to learn about the history and you know who the good players were and what they were like as kids. And you know you can you can set little if your if your child has a assignment for school, a history assignment, um, then maybe they can explore. And they love baseball. Maybe they can explore how um, one of the famous baseball players how they became a good baseball what did they do in childhood there's usually a lot of material now on the internet about their their childhood and their development so it's just a matter of kind of making sure that that you make it fun don't criticize the child in any way it's always encouraging um, don't be over overly helpful um, because their brain will eventually figure it out. If you don't give them too much advice, their brain will, will figure out as they just continue to, to practice. So, um, I, I, you know, and if you're into science then and you've got access to a library, just type in science of youth sport and you'll be inundated with, um, with articles and research. Um, some good, some not so good. Yeah, well, Dr. Brooks, I hope we can do this again as I continue through the course and, and get a lot more questions in my head. So, okay, where, where are you in the course, Mark? Uh, I'm on week three, one week, week three. three. So, the first course is five weeks, right? Uh, yes, and I forget it's I forget what, what I have included in week three. What, what do I have included there? Uh, I got you, you know, I finished genotype and phenotype, you know, and that okay. sort of stuff. and now we'll see what lies ahead so so you've got to get you i'll talk a lot about neurological development development of coordination um development of flexibility um so all that is to come yeah so you've got some pretty interesting stuff to to go through very cool i'm yeah. gonna go make my kids stretch right now okay. so. <laughs> Thank you very All much, right. Dr. Brooks. I hope you uh, enjoy the rest of the day and thanks for hanging out with me. Well, my pleasure. And I hope, I hope it's been useful to you. It has, absolutely. I okay, think people will enjoy great. this. Thanks a okay, lot. Okay, great. All right, yeah, bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye.